One of the machines came quite near to us and then stopped about four feet away. I started to examine the three rods it had, battling to control the fast way I was breathing and every impulse I had to panic and run. The three rods were each entirely different. The first and shortest was attached to the top, the domed part, and seemed to be a sort of eye. I could see the iris contracting and expanding as it ranged over us. The other two were in the position of arms, being roughly in the centre of the body at each side of it. The left-hand one was a stubby barrel of fur, little more than a stick with a hole running through it. The other, the longest of the three, was a black rod with a suction pad at the end of it. I also noticed there were two bulbs on either side of the base of the eye stick, and at first I thought these were two more eyes, until they suddenly started to light up as the machine spoke. The machine spoke. I felt so startled that I took a short step backwards and nearly fell over the doctor's body. The voice was all on one level, without any expression at all. A dull monotone that still managed to convey a terrible sense of evil. Is anybody out there? Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dr. Leyland. I've not been a fan of Sylvester McCoy as Doctor Who, ever. I didn't like his debut, and I pretty much stopped watching the show after his first four-part story, a ridiculous pantomime of an episode featuring Doctor McCoy playing the spoons, gurning and generally acting the fool in a story that went nowhere and did it very badly. Add to this, campy turns from dynasty actor Kate Amara as fellow Time Lord Varane, and a screaming irritant of a companion in former child actress Bonnie Langford as Mel, and I felt Doctor Who had had its day. I moved on to other things. Probably Star Trek The Next Generation and Red Dwarf and maybe Girls. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing, though, to be honest. Moving on, and then coming back gives you some perspective that you don't get if you stay in the same place all the time. I haven't rewatched Time and the Rani since it aired, but I can't imagine there's been a worse debut story for a doctor. Well, except poor Colin Baker. Anyone complaining about the recent Jodie Whittaker season needs to revisit Baker the Second and McCoy to see what tripe really looks like. Now, to be fair, I'd started to become a casual fan of Doctor Who in the Colin Baker years, no longer was the show appointment television for me. This was no reflection on Baker II. Whilst I didn't dislike him, and could certainly appreciate the ample charms of Nicola Bryant as his companion Perry, his era of Doctor Who simply coincided with me finding other interests. I think perhaps I was growing up and Doctor Who was still seen as a children's show. Granted, Baker's multicoloured costume didn't help matters in that regard. He looked like a clown on a Saturday morning quiz show, more at home on Tiz Was than Doctor Who, and as such, I drifted away. Apparently, I wasn't the only one, and Doctor Who was rested for 18 months and almost cancelled there and then. A tried and true way of retaining interest in the show, though, was to recast the main role, a stunt that can always be relied on to generate a decent amount of publicity. Poor Colin Baker was made a scapegoat for all of the problems with the series since Peter Davison left, and he was unceremoniously fired. Sadly, as Time and the Rani proved, recasting the role couldn't fix the actual 
actual quality of the programme and replacing him with an actor that actually was on Tiz Was didn't really help matters. Granted, a BBC controller who didn't like the show couldn't have helped either. However, I was pulled back in on Wednesday the 5th of October 1988 for the show's 25th anniversary, but wasn't too impressed by what I saw. My recollection of it was that Doctor Who had sacrificed its intelligence for explosions and action. The erring of the 25th anniversary season also demonstrated how far the show had plummeted in the eyes of both the BBC and the general public. The series' 20th anniversary had landed amidst a blitz of publicity, a Radio Times cover story and a 90-minute telefilm, The Five Doctors. The 25th anniversary was, by contrast, a far more muted affair. The 25th season would be abbreviated, down to 14 episodes rather than the 26 of my youth, and there was very little pomp and circumstance. The series was also put up against ITV soap opera juggernaut Coronation Street. Auntie Beeb would probably argue this was an example of counter-programming, but was more likely a way for them to axe the show when the ratings came in. However, I was recently browsing a second-hand bookshop, and I came across the novel for this 25th anniversary story, entitled Remembrance of the Daleks, by writer Ben Aranovich. It was one shiny pound. I couldn't resist. I bought it and started reading it. On paper, I didn't find Sylvester's performance annoying, probably because I couldn't see him, and the story was a fast-paced little romp. It was highly entertaining, and even featured an appearance by the Doctor as he was back in the very first episode. Rather than reunite the older actors in a cross-regeneration story, Remembrance prefers instead to set the story on November 23rd, 1963, the ur-date of the first episode. The story is also set in and around popular landmarks from that first show, such as Totter's Yard, where we first saw the TARDIS all those years ago, and Coal Hill School, a prominent location in that first story. This kind of fan-wank is ultimately what did the show in, but in this case, the setting and nods to the past are subtle and well done, rather than off-putting and elitist. I took all of this as a sign to revisit Dr McCoy, the seventh actor to inhabit the role, and see if I was being unfair to him. Rather unusually for this era of Doctor Who, the episode, the first of four 25-minute segments, starts with a cold open. John F. Kennedy talks about us all breathing the same air before segueing into Martin Luther King and Charles de Gaulle. An ominous spaceship approaches Earth as these stirring words are heard and the credits kick in. Holy sweet mother of Jesus, I'd forgotten how bad the Sylvester McCoy era opening credits and theme are. The sub-BBC Micro CG, that terrible wink. An awful arrangement of the theme tune. <laughs> have a listen. I shouldn't have to endure this alone. I hope your ears have stopped bleeding. 
The opening scene sees the Doctor and Ace, the current companion played by Sophie Aldred, who refers to the Doctor as Professor for some reason, arriving in Shoreditch, North London. Ace is rather conspicuous in her 80s bomber jacket, carrying her 80s ghetto blaster and referring to local people as having no street cred. The only thing would make her more 80s was if she said, I pity the fool. Interestingly, McCoy makes no effort to hide his Scottish accent, yet no one seemed to cur back then. Cut to Peter Capaldi's doctor and suddenly his accent is a political statement. The doctor investigates a peculiar TV detector van, whilst Ace buggers off to get a bacon sarnie and a coffee. Her not understanding pre-decimal currency was a nice touch. The Doctor and Ace immediately fall into a military investigation at the old junkyard on Totter's Lane. Much has been made of the fact that the production crew misspelled I am Foreman on the nameplate, but this seems like the typical incompetence of the local council, and as such I had no issues with it. The armour investigating a bizarre encroachment involving a series of strange energy weapons, something that is naturally of interest to the Doctor. I don't really recall a lot about Ace, as I wasn't really watching the show when she was in her prime. She seems fine, if a tad dated nowadays, although probably no more so than Joe Grant. Aldred seems somewhat inexperienced in places. Her line delivery is a bit forced and unnatural, but she more than makes up for this in enthusiasm. She's vibrant and clearly enjoying being here, as well as boasting a great rapport with McCoy. Less old friends and more father-daughter. The Doctor and Ace play off each other nicely. The Doctor clearly has a fatherly affection for Ace, very different to prior relationships like Tegan, Sarah Jane, and definitely not Romana II, where there was clear evidence of hanky-panky going on in the TARDIS. I was also impressed with how this was shot. I've complained before that one of the reasons Doctor Who started struggling was that it was mired in 70s and even earlier production values in comparison to ITV productions that were shot on film and glossy American imports that boasted significantly higher production value. Well, except Buck Rogers, which was hugely expensive, yet still managed to look threadbare. This episode doesn't look like the standard static production methods of older Who. Rather, the director and producer seem to be desperately trying to drag the show into the 80s, albeit a scant eight years too late. The effects of the attack on the army are really quite good, even by today's standards. The beam catches the soldier, and we see his entire skeleton before he's pushed backwards into a fence. A real neat synthesis of practical stunt work and special effects. The teasing and then first appearance of the Dalek is pretty damn cool, especially the eye stock point of view. Kudos to writer Aronovich for the dialogue as well. The Doctor calls Captain Gilmore Brigadier, which is a lovely moment, whilst the Doctor asks his pyrotechnic happy partner for some of that Nitro 9 you're not carrying, genuinely raising a chuckle. After some nice explosions and a decent look inside a destroyed Dalek, the Doctor tells Ace who the Daleks are and how they came to be. These Daleks? Daleks. Oh, Daleks. Where are they from? From Skyro, at least originally. They're the mutated remains of a species called the Khaleds, left here. When were they left here? No, turn left here. Oh, right. No, left. You missed the turning. What turn? Where? Why don't you concentrate on where you're going? Look, I'm doing the best I can. If you don't like it, you drive. The Khaleds were at war with the Thals. They had a dirty nuclear war. The resulting mutations were then accelerated by the chief scientist Davros. What he created, he then placed in a metal war machine. And that's how the Daleks came about. So that metal thing had a creature inside, controlling it? Exactly. 
And ever since the Daleks were created, they've tried to conquer and enslave as much of the universe as they get their grubby little protuberances on. And now they want to conquer the Earth. Nothing so mundane. They conquer the Earth in the 22nd century. No. They want the hand of Omega. What's that? One thing at a time, Ace. The guest cast of this episode keeps throwing up some nice surprises. Captain Gilmore is played by renter posh bloke Simon Williams, no relation to the Marvel Comics character Wonder Man. In addition to Williams, who was best known for Upstairs, Downstairs, UFO's Colonel Alec Freeman himself, actor George Sewell, shows up as Ratcliffe, a slightly shady dude. And then Grange Hill's Mr Bronson, actor Michael Sherd, shows up as the headmaster at Cole Hill. Sherd is forever immortalised to generations of British kids as Bronson, but international audiences will know him better as Admiral Ozzel in The Empire Strikes Back and Hitler in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. His asking if the Doctor is here for the recently advertised post of caretaker is a nice gag, with foresight, given that Peter Capaldi's Doctor would take that exact role in an episode of his run. As mentioned, there are a number of allusions to the show's history, apt given this is the 25th anniversary season. The Doctor refers to past events seen in Genesis of the Daleks, Planet of the Daleks, The Web of Fear and Terror of the Zygons. And of course there's the setting, which is a massive fan nod in and of itself. Most of these are subtle and pass by quickly, completely unnoticed by casual viewers. However, there is a moment where Ace picks up a copy of a book called History of the French Revolution. Sophie Aldred picks up this book and turns it to the camera in such an unnatural way as to keep the title visible. It practically screams out, Easter Egg! I'll be honest, this reference would have gone right by me had it been shot in a much more subtle manner, as it would take someone with a really long memory to recall that this was the same book Susan was reading back in An Unearthly Child, especially when this originally aired in 1988 and DVDs and videos weren't as prominent as they are now. Which is not to say there isn't still some campy humour. There's a scene in the middle where the Doctor and Ace steal a van and the Doctor criticises Ace's driving. She points out that if he hates it so much then he should drive. And after disappearing into a dark tunnel, the van emerges and suddenly it is the Doctor driving and Ace is sat in the passenger seat. The Doctor is also quite shady in this episode. I can only presume that McCoy's casting was quite last minute, and as such, maybe I was a tad harsh in my initial judgement of him. Here, he's playing a much more subdued and mysterious figure. He avoids answering questions, seems to be playing a game only he understands, and is generally more conniving and manipulative than I recall. It's a much better take on the character than the clown of Time and the Rani. Ratcliffe is working with a mysterious figure, although if you've watched any prior Dalek stories, you can probably work out who he is. Even Michael Sheard's headmaster is in on the Dalek gambit. Part one concludes with our first ever flying Dalek, showing that stirs are no longer the obstacle they once were. With Ace knocked out by the evil headmaster and the Doctor being terrorised by a floating Dalek, all looks grim, but this is only part one, so have no fear, the resolution will no doubt present itself. It does, thanks to Ace's quick thinking and even quicker recuperative abilities. She helps the Doctor out of the cellar after laying Mr Bronson out, and then she locks the door. It takes this Dalek just the right amount of time to blast the door off its hinges. By that I mean, it takes the Dalek long enough for Ace and the Doctor to flee, and just enough time for the Doctor to notice that the head teacher is being controlled. This seems to be very much like Star Trek, where the length a turbo lift ride takes is directly proportional to how much dialogue the actors have. 
Like the redesigned Daleks themselves, Remembrance of the Daleks trundles along nicely. The Doctor continues to act mysterious and enigmatic, and it's hinted at that he can manipulate people through some kind of hypnosis. None of this explains why Sylvester McCoy continues to rule his R's so dramatically. It's interesting to compare the time this story was made and the time it was set to today, which is roughly the same amount of time. It's 30 years since this show aired, and it was set 25 years earlier. Despite the changes in currency, Ace has no problem adjusting to a time before she was born. It would be interesting to put a young girl of Ace's age back in 1988 and see how they cope. Technology has changed so much since 1988, far more than between 63 and 88, so the differences are stark. One thing the show does make a point of showing is the differences between then and now with regards to racism. Ace finds a no coloureds allowed sign on the window of the boarding house where she's staying in, and her reaction is nicely understated. The producers have since lamented that she didn't go a little bit further with this, and actually ripped the sign up. I don't recall ever seeing signs like that in my lifetime, so it's a nice reminder that casual bigotry can be stomped out relatively quickly. Having it remain stamped out, well, that's the real trick, isn't it? Crucially, it's not a piece of social commentary for the sake of it. It's a reminder that humanity isn't perhaps as far removed from the myopic prejudices of the Daleks as we like to think. Further evidence of this is George Sewell's character, who makes mention of how he feels that the UK was on the wrong side in World War II. Some of the production value is a little bit off. The story is set in November, yet the production never really sells that this is winter. The days are too bright for November for one, and it looks far too warm. By the end of November, daylight is down to about seven hours a day, so it seems to be stretching it a bit that the entire story takes place over such a short period of time. The Daleks are here looking for the Hand of Omega, which the Doctor apparently left here in his first incarnation. Once again, the companion is used to explain the main plot to the audience. A long time ago, on my home planet of Gallifrey, there lived a stellar engineer called Omega. Stellar? As in stars? You mean he engineered stars? Ace! Oh, sorry. Go on. It was Omega who created the supernova that was the initial parcels for Gallifreyan time travel experiments. He left behind him the basis on which Rassilon founded Time Lord Society. And he left behind the hand of Omega. His hand? What good was that? No, no, not his hand, literally. No, no, it's called that because Time Lords have an infinite capacity for pretension. Mm, notice that. The Hand of Omega is a mythical name for Omega's remote stellar manipulator, a device used to customise stars with. <laughs> and didn't we have trouble with the prototype? We? They. And the Daleks want it so they can recreate the time travel experiments? But you said that both Dalek factions can already travel in time. Oh yes, Daleks have got time corridor technology, but it's very crude and nasty. And what they want is the power that Time Lords have. And they'll get that with the Hand of Omega. Or so they think. And you have to try and stop them. No, yes, I want them to have it. Eh? My problem is trying to stop Group Captain Gilmore and his men getting diced in the crossfire. So, all this is... Is a massive deception, yes. <sighs> well, Devious. So the Daleks grab the hand of Omega and go, and no one gets hurt. Brilliant. Just one thing. What? I didn't expect two Dalek factions. 
And now I've got to make sure that the wrong ones don't get their grubby little protuberances on it. Shouldn't we take Mike? No, Dalek hunting is a terminal pastime. So what are we doing? Dalek hunting. The main surprise about watching Remembrance of the Daleks again, the second time I've done this on a podcast, is how modern it feels. Ace feels very much like the prototype for the modern-day companion, with a lot of time devoted to her and her proper life. Much like Russell T. Davis would do with Rose, Donna, and to a lesser extent, Martha, Ace is given a private life. She flirts with soldier Mike, which makes it all the more heartbreaking when he betrays her, and Earth, to the Daleks. She's a normal person thrust into the Doctor's world, and it's exciting and vibrant to her. The feel of the episodes is quite contemporary as well. There's a lot of whiz-bang in Remembrance of the Daleks, lots of action and explosions, again prefiguring the revitalised show. Somewhere else that it also points towards the future, albeit not in a good way, is in Kef McCullough's score. Composer Murray Gold, who scored all of New Who up until the arrival of Jodie Whittaker, was a composer of the old school, with leitmotifs, themes and grand orchestral moments. Sometimes Gold's music was a little loud in the mix, but it was wonderful here a return to thematic and melodic scores. Scores that were so successful that not only did the albums do well, but Doctor Who would have themed nights at the proms. McCullough's score tries for those lofty goals, but his synth-heavy, all-too-80s percussion is often intrusive and distracting, rather than complimentary. Mostly, it's just a racket. Aronovich also delivers a proto-unit with an excellent array of supporting characters. Whilst Gilmore is obviously a Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart standard, Mike, played by Dursley McClendon, Rachel, played by Pamela Salem, and Alison, Karen Gledhill, also seemed like stand-ins for Mike Yates, Liz Shaw, and Joe Grant, respectively, all from the Pertwee era. It feels like a Pertwee story in other ways as well. Setting it all on Earth and seeing the Daleks trundle around recognisable London streets gives the fantasy a grounded reality, not present when stories are set on other worlds. Again, something Russell T. Davis would mimic a lot in his era. The introduction of different Dalek classes, like the Emperor Dalek and the Special Weapons Dalek, referred to as the Abomination in the novel, is also really cool. The special effects are mostly very effective, especially a scene where the Dalek shuttle lands in the schoolyard of Coal Hill School, which is all the more impressive for being a fully practical effect sequence. The big surprise, that the Emperor is really Davros, isn't really that much of a shock, although the reveal itself is nicely handled. This is Doctor Who of this era, so there's still some dodgy acting and stagey moments, but overall this isn't at all bad. The story holds together nicely, and the production value seemed to have taken a leap forward after the cheap-looking Colin Baker era. Even the well-regarded Peter Davison run was still a little bargain basement, whereas this looks like it has a decent-ish budget. Ultimately, the Doctor ends up playing Brer Rabbit with the Daleks and tricks them into stepping into the Briar Patch, resulting in the destruction of the Dalek homeworld of Scarrow. Sylvester McCoy still struggles to sell overly dramatic moments, but he does excel at calm anger. His unlimited rice pudding line is a classic. As with all the Doctors, it was simply a case of finding and then writing to his strengths. The novel, the reason I'm ultimately revisiting this, is a fast-paced, easy read, as were most Target novels. Remembrance is especially fast, though, and Ben Aronovich, now a successful author, having written the successful Rivers of London series, mentioned in an interview that this is where he learned his prose style was quite sparse. 
To combat this, he added a few nice scenes with the Daleks, some extra quotations to open the chapters, and, as mentioned above, a cameo from the first Doctor, which the TV show couldn't have afforded back then, but could now be done relatively easily with some computer jiggery-pokery. He also restructures bits of it to make for a better continuous story, rather than four TV episodes. Remembrance of the Daleks isn't as revolutionary now as it felt when it first aired. It can't be. A number of its biggest shocks and surprises, such as elevating Daleks and the attempt to make the Daleks a formidable threat again, have all been done more recently and better, to be fair, on the new show. But it is remarkable in how it prefigures the Russell T. Davies update. It focuses on the banal, everyday lives of its cast and companion in the same way that Davis did. Ace likes bacon sandwiches and people drink tea in crummy old greasy spoon cafes, worrying about their little lives. Into this wanders the fantastic and the surreal, a silly little man who knows far more than he lets on, and walking pepper pots that can wipe out entire armies without pausing. And this is why Remembrance of the Daleks is worth revisiting again and again. The notion that Doctor Who was brought back and was exactly the same, yet completely different, is spot on. And it's nice to show fans who only like the new show that there isn't an old show and a new show. There's just Doctor Who. John Pertwee's stories about ecology and the mess we're making of the planet deserve to be held up against stories about Rosa Parks or Vincent van Gogh. The terror the Daleks engender is the same in Genesis of the Daleks in 1975 as it is in Dalek in 2005. Remembrance may not be as revolutionary as it once was, but that in no way diminishes it. Hell, it made me like Sylvester McCoy. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. It's finally here. Coming to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. General? Would you care to step outside? It's Superman 2 Movie Minute. Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly are back to discuss 1980's Superman 2, five minutes at a time. Superman faces his toughest challenge when he squares off against Lex Luthor and three villains from the planet Krypton. Superman 2, Movie Minute, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Man, this is going to be good. And we are back with the email section of the show, which this week consists of one, but it's a good one, so that's nice. Dan Doherty's emailed in again. Hello, Dan. Hello, Andy. Into the Shatnerverse. I would totally watch a film that was the Shatnerverse. Just as you're running out of adjectives to describe the gorgeous covers of The Amazing Spider-Man, I'm running out of adjectives to describe your absolutely superb Spider-Man-centric episodes of The Palace. While I am following along in my omnibus, I do have some of the original issues you're covering, including the first two parts of the Doctor Octopus Amnesia storyline. <sighs> Sorry, I can't read these issues without being reminded of that god-awful Make-A-Wish and Attack of the Octobot two-parter from the third season of the 90s Spider-Man animated series, a botched attempt to combine the Doc Ock Amnesia story with the kid who collects Spider-Man. Those are possibly the weakest episodes of the whole series. I don't remember those. I've got the complete run of that on DVD, which I don't believe has still to this day has not been released in America, which I don't understand. And the British one now commands a pretty penny on the, the back market. 
But I, I picked it up for about 10 quid. Um, I started watching it. I know I got through the first two seasons. I mustn't have ever gone through the third, fourth and fifth season, even though I saw them all when they heard. So I may pick that up again. That may be a good, interesting topic for uh, a show, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. I know I've done Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, so it may be nice to do a, an episode on the 90s show. Anyway, moving right along. As Dan says, I thoroughly enjoyed your episode on tie-in novels. And I'm going to throw Dan a thanks that he sent me two tie-in novels. He sent me two Six Million Dollar Man tie-in novels, which proudly adorn my shelf. Here they are, next to such classics as David Gerald's novelization for Encounter at Farpoint. And, um, what's this? Oh yeah, Knight Rider. <laughs> His car was almost human. He was superhuman. Now a major TV series by Glenn Larson and Roger Hill. So it's it's on the shelf next to some quality uh, TV adaptation novels. I think it has to be said. So thanks for that, Dad. Uh, it's nice to hear the Shatnerverse getting some love. I have the audio book versions of several of these novels read by James T. himself, William Shatner. The Ashes of Eden is a particular standout for me personally. When I was a kid, I loved Star Trek VI when it came out, but despite the fact that it was supposed to be the final original series film, I still wanted Kirk and crew to come back for another adventure in Star Trek VII. Star Trek Generations came out in 1994, and it wasn't what I wanted. All the problems with Generations could take up its own discussion. All I'll say for the moment is the novel by J.M. Dillard is far more satisfying than the released film. Yes, it is. A trick Dillard also pulled off with Star Trek V The Final Frontier, which I read before I saw the film and thus thought I was going to see a good film. But, you know, maybe you should reread the novel instead of watching the movie. Not to go off on a bit of a rant, but I cannot notice the similarities of Admiral Drake from The Ashes of Eden and Admiral Marcus from the single worst film in Trek history, Star Trek Into Darkness. Both characters have plans of turning Starfleet into a harsh paramilitary organisation, but of the two, Drake is the stronger villain. The Ashes of Eden, Admiral Drake is the quintessential alpha male bully, and unlike Into Darkness Marcus, you get the sense that Drake's vision of a darker, tougher, more warlike Starfleet is a real nightmare. In the end, The Ashes of Eden becomes a battle of ideologies, Kirk's vision of looking to the future with compassion versus Drake's plan for the militaristic one. Into Darkness never comes close to this level, mostly because the film can't seem to make up its mind who the main villain should be, Admiral Marcus or Khan, but that again is another story. To me, Admiral Marcus comes across as a shallow copy of Admiral Drake, a real threat who, if he had appeared in one of the films, might have even rivaled the legendary Khan as the most popular Star Trek movie bad guy. Until next time, may you never run out of web fluid, make sure you keep a phaser by your side, and may you always live long and prosper. Thank you, Dan. Uh, yeah, I love The Ashes of Eden. That, is, um, that, that, that novel is on the list of books to reread and maybe cover on the show. I've never read the comic adaptation. I am intrigued by the notion that there is an audiobook read by Bill Shatner. I may have to see if that's on Audible or, or somewhere else that I can listen to it, because the only thing I can think of that makes that better is that Shatner himself reads it. I think that would be absolutely glorious to listen to. Shatner's at London Film and Comic Con this year, which I am considering going to. And I'm like, do I really want to pay a millionaire 85 quid for his autograph? I don't know. I think I'd rather see Lee Majors, who's, who's half that price. But, you know, he was the $6 million man. Don't know if there's anything cooler than that, except Captain Kirk, obviously. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this week. Hope you enjoyed this remembrance of Remembrance of the Daleks. Remember, if you want to go and check out an earlier opinion of mine on that, 
Who True Freaks on this year network did an episode of Remembrance of the Daleks, which I did with the late, great and much missed Sean Engel and Dave Walker, where we talked about Remembrance. Um, sometimes interesting, I think, to go back and look at things you've looked at a long time ago and see if the passage of time has affected your viewpoint on it. Any. So I'd love to hear from people who've listened to both what they think. And is there another Sylvester McCoy story down the line maybe I should look at that would change my opinion of him? As of Remembrance of the Daleks, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not as loathing of him as I once was. He's still my least favourite television doctor. But let's see if we can change that. Remember, John Pertwee wasn't a favourite until Shag Matthews gave me some audio adventures. And then I went back and, and watched the DVD of, uh, of Spearhead from Space and started watching a lot of Pertwee adventures. Now I really like him. So, you know, maybe the same thing will happen with Sylvester. As ever, you can email, because I've done a lot of episodes recently, if you want to email me about any of them, heykidscomics.com is the email for this, which you can drop me a line at. Uh, and as ever, we're a Two True Freaks production. Um, I'll be back next time, probably, with my final part of Now Voyager. So, look forward to that. I hope you'll join me for it, and I'll see you real soon. And remember, everything is going to be okay. Okay.